One does not necessarily allow the state to define what is legal. Now, the state has the power to enforce a certain concept of what is legal, but power doesn't imply justice or correctness even. So the state may define something as civil disobedience and may be wrong in doing so. Throughout American history, the political leaders have always exhorted the American people to be nice and quiet and leave things to them. But when very serious evils confronted the American people, they had to go beyond the congressmen and the senators, and they had to commit civil disobedience, and they had even to break the law. 30 seconds and counting. You're listening to News Coup, where Public Herald sets the record straight on what's in the news. I'm your host, Joshua Probanek, coming to you from our offices in Pittsburgh. Today on the show, we're going to talk about taking direct action. What's the right approach? Should you go to court? Should you contact your elected officials? Should you take on the state, break the laws, and perform acts of civil disobedience? And do you do this alone? Or do you get masses of people involved? Then, when the police show up, what's next? Should you get arrested? And how can something like an action consensus help you organize and handle law enforcement? We start the show with Jillian Graber, the director of Protect PT, who's been fighting to protect communities from fracking in southwest Pennsylvania. Her story recently found evidence of criminal acts by both the oil and gas industry and state, and she's called on the Pennsylvania Attorney General, Josh Shapiro, to investigate. Her call joins part of a growing list of organizations and individuals across the state who've asked the Shapiro's office to investigate the Pennsylvania DEP. For those new to Public Herald, Our newsroom published a list in 2017 of 178 cases of official misconduct committed by the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection during citizen complaint investigations related to fracking. Uh, That work took our team roughly about seven years to put together uh, with three years of file reviews and uh, data collection and reviews by scientists and attorneys and whatnot. Uh, We officially submitted a letter to the Science Advisory Board of the EPA in 2016 asking for a criminal investigation of the DEP and the EPA. Uh, That speech can be viewed in our documentary on fracking, Triple Divide Redacted, which is available online to stream. Halfway through the show today, we switch gears and speak with German activist Daniel Hoffinger of Enda Galenda and Lisa Winter from Rising Tide North America Collective. Their work in direct action helped mobilize over 5,000 people to stop a coal mine in Germany recently. They'll be talking to us about why civil disobedience is so important in the United States at this time. To subscribe to this show and all of our shows, look for us on your favorite podcast channels by searching for News Coup. As always, We are publicly funded and grateful for everyone who listens and shares our work. Please consider becoming a lifetime member of Public Herald for only $30 or making a donation to our work at publicherald.org slash donate to help us continue to produce News Coup. There are also other ways to donate. You can share this show on Twitter and tag Public Herald or News Coup or leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. With that, let's dive into today's show.
Today, I'm here with Jillian Graber from Protect PT. They are a nonprofit here in southwest Pennsylvania that's been working on oil and gas issues since 2015. Uh, Protect PT stands for Protect Penn Trafford. And uh, they've had some incredible work down here in establishing lawsuits against both the companies themselves and the state. And uniquely enough, um, in the last six months or so, they've put out a call for a specific company to be investigated by the attorney general in this area. And also that the Department of Environmental Protection be included in that investigation by the attorney general and that their conduct be reviewed. And that's what we're here to talk a little bit about today. So, Jillian, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for coming to our office. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, tell me a little bit more about how this got started for you. How did you get involved with uh, oil and gas? So, um, I originally um, I started with oil and gas uh, when there was a well pad being proposed near my house. Um, and I knew kind of what that meant. Uh, I knew that it would mean air pollution. And we had dealt with air pollution at our home before. And I dealt with the DEP with that issue. And so I knew that there was something that we needed to do uh, to try to stop the pollution near our home uh, and, and near our kids. And what happened with the, the situation at your home? So when we moved into our house uh, here in Westmoreland County, um, our, we noticed that we started getting really sick. And uh, we found out that our neighbor was using a wood boiler, an outdoor wood boiler, to heat their home. And they were packing it full of wood and choking off the air and creating a ton of smoke. And it was so thick in our backyard. It looked like fog <laughs> all the time. And this was in, during the heating season. <laughs> so we moved in in the summer and we didn't know until like October, November, when we started getting sick, what was going on. Um, and we investigated and tried to talk to our neighbor and they uh, basically said, well, you know, we're allowed to do it. So uh, we went to the local government and they said, well, there's nothing we can do. We went to the Department of Environmental Protection and they said, well, there's nothing that they can do. And when I pressed, uh, I found out that they can do something. Um, it was within their jurisdiction to uh, to uphold the um, Clean Air Act, which is the state law that would you know, kind of fall under this type of pollution. And um, what ha ended up happening is they said that they would not um, send out letters of violation uh, and pursue the case um, because they simply did not have the resources to do so, uh, that they had bigger fish to fry. And um, I was really upset because I felt very isolated. My family was really sick. Um, and so I felt like, you know, I, we have to do something to to see, to be able to live in this house, to stay in this house, because um, it was that bad. So you, right off the bat, you had an experience where the DEP seemed to not only not do their job, but leave you stuck with pollution. Absolutely. They said, and I quote, uh, it is within our discretion to enforce this law. And I said to uh, Susan Malone at the DEP, the Southwest Regional Office, when I talked to her, I said, well, it's not within my discretion to pay my taxes, to pay your salary, but it is within your discretion to, to you know, make the, my neighbors and follow the law. I don't really understand that. Tell me a little bit more about how Protect PT uh, got started. Um, so we just started uh, organizing. There's a couple uh, neighbors that had put put a flyer together. I got a hold of it, and um, my 
husband and I said, you know, we got to do something. So I made tons of copies and I walked around my neighborhood <laughs> and started letting people know what was going on. I followed the school bus up the hill the one day um, after my kids got on the bus and I just handed them out to all the parents. And then I got some more people involved and they said, we want to help. So we started the organization Protect PT in my living room. <laughs> uh, I never expected to be the leader of the organization. Um, I never had experience doing this before, um, but I did have experience um, doing you know, stuff like sending out newsletters, and I was really good with technology and connecting with people. So that's kind of why they picked me to, to lead, and it's kind of gone from there. <laughs> And as the executive director of Protect PT, what have been some of your accomplishments thus far? Um, so we have really tried to hold the local government uh, accountable for um, for regulating what they can with oil and gas. Um, we actually had three well pads that were denied um, in our in our community uh, as a result of our organizing and, and participating at local hearings. Um, those. Uh, eventually were then turned around and approved after the gas company threatened a $380 million lawsuit. Um, and we learned really quickly that uh, these this, this, comp this industry is a bunch of bullies and they will use the power that they have to get what they want. Um, so we try to really educate people, make sure that they understand what this means for their community and um, how, what they can do to, to prevent it. And what have been some of the the bigger issues that you've seen uh, now in your three or four years doing this? So at first, we really tried to take um, the approach that you know, well, this this industry it's 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 an industrial process, and um, you know it belongs in in industrial zones only, and we still take that position. However, you know we found that. The system that is set in place to protect us, which is the Department of Environmental Protection and the state laws, um, that that system's broken. Um, and so you will have development that happens in your community and there will be violations to state and federal law and there will be no repercussions and consequences for the industry um, as a result. And that's what really bothers me about this, this system, the system is broken. And, um, uh, you know, I, I grew up thinking very idealistically that our governments, our local and state governments and federal government are here to protect us. And um, that really changed when when this happened with my family. Um, and I just keep seeing it over and over and over again. And it's, it's a big letdown. Um, for, you know, and, and I try to teach my kids that they have to do something um, so they don't have to deal with uh, the stuff that we're dealing with right now. We hear those things from from people now talking about how the system is broken and, you know, everything's messed up. But and in your case, um, I think you've done a little more legwork than than the normal uh, group in terms of trying to prove that that system is broken. And, and uh, how did you how did you figure that out? Well, you know, we knew that um, we knew that there were systems in place for us to be able to get the information. Um, and so we started doing file reviews at the DEP. And you, you know, we looked online to see what the violations were and why they were happening. And um, what was what was basically what was the consequence of a violation of 
the Clean Streams Law, for instance. You know, what happened as a result of that? Uh, and we found that after two years, this one particular operator that's um, operating near our community, uh, after two years, not only were they not being penalized for violating state and federal law, but they were also, they you know, nothing was really happening. They were still receiving new permits for new development while they were dealing with trying to clean up their mess that they didn't clean up for two years. And so it just doesn't make any sense to me (laughs) for an operator who is not in compliance with state law to get more state permits to then be able to violate state law even more. So in order for you to essentially find out that the system has been broken and that you can't uh, go and get the DEP to do what it is that you need to get done under the law, uh, you had to go into the DEP's office and look at their records. Yeah. So we looked at the records and we questioned. We said, why aren't they being held to these standards? You know, And uh, we actually met with Secretary Patrick McDonnell um, last summer. And we asked him face to face, why are, you know, why is this happening? Um, And he cited some case uh, where the state went after a gas operator and um, there were lots of fines that were um, included in this case. And the Supreme Court said, oh, well, DEP, you don't have the right to impose all these fines. Um, And so it was like, well, let's just throw our hands up in the air and do nothing then. But they have the ability to um, to not issue permits and they're just not doing it. They, They don't. I don't know if they don't want to. I don't know what the deal is. So you've recently called on the attorney general and requested for assistance in this. And um, what is it that you've asked the attorney general and and how did that how did that come about? So we asked two things. Uh, We asked them, we asked the attorney general to investigate Apex Energy LLC, which has been in violation of state law for over two years at a site in Salem Township, which is right next to Penn Township. And then we also asked that the AG investigate the conduct of the DEP. And we said that there is a systemic failure of the DEP and that the DEP should be investigated um, because of their their failure to respond to um, and and to to stop issuing permits for operators that are not in compliance with state law. And what has been the, the attorney general's response to you? So their response was, uh, well, first of all, we didn't get a response at first. We had to call and, and ask someone for a response. So you sent a certified letter to the attorney general's office and they never sent you a response. Yes. Not only you said that you had environmental crimes happening from an oil and gas well and that you had state official misconduct, and Josh Shapiro's office decided not to give you a call and talk to you. Yeah, so we sent the letter back in January. January 17th, we sent the letter. Um, uh, Last week, I called to get a follow-up. And um, the answer that I received, and not only was it our certified letter, but we had a campaign, a letter-writing campaign, and 310 more letters were sent on top of our letters to the AG's office. And they said, they first of all, when I called, it was like they didn't even know about it. Oh, where, where did you send your letter? And I said, I sent it to Harrisburg, and I gave her the address. And she said, oh, well, we're, 
we need you to contact your district attorney. That is the right person to um, pursue this case, not us. And I then I contacted our district attorney. Um, we just sent them a certified letter last week. Um, but I have yet to hear from anybody about that. So this has been a, a misdirection effort by the attorney general's office that we've seen in the past. So the attorney general's office uh, can ask you to contact the DA when it comes to environmental crimes for an industry. And then when that happens, it can get sent to the DEP, the DEP can refer environmental crimes, or the DA can send it to the AG and it can go from there. Um, But in your case, you're talking about two things specifically, both the environmental crimes and the crimes of official misconduct from the DEP. And in that case, the attorney general seems to have misdirected you essentially to the wrong authority. Uh, in order to get help when it's the attorney general who's the one who has to take action for you if there's official misconduct in the state. Right. That's right. I talked to someone in the environmental crimes, and when I asked her, she said, well, DEP can can contact us, a district attorney can contact us, but you can't contact us uh, and request this for us to pursue this. And I said, well, why would the DEP contact you about the DEP? Why would they come to you and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> we are not doing our job. That doesn't make any sense. And she said, well, I'm just going to refer you back to your DA. So I remember back in 2017 when we dropped the report about DEP misconduct and we cited uh, specifically evidence on 178 cases of negligence, malfeasance and misfeasance uh, that people started to call the attorney general's office. And uh, apparently they got hundreds of calls at that time about residents who had problems with the DEP and them asking the AG to investigate DEP's conduct. And at the beginning, um, the receptionists there, they did start to tell people what they told you, which was, uh, please contact your inspector general or your auditor general or your DA. And we immediately followed up with them and said, hey, uh, this isn't really how this works. You know, somebody calls you with a state official misconduct, you know, you're, you're the ones that are obligated to investigate that under your civil or criminal division. And uh, we went back and forth with, I think, Joe Grace at the time. And eventually they did come back and say uh, the day after that, yes, that is our job to handle uh, the prosecution of the DEP or somebody else at the state level uh, if we, you know, need to look at uh, cases of conduct. Um, so that people were able to call and actually get a record established at the AG's office. So I'm just kind of shocked in your case that that this kind of misdirection has been repeated, mm-hmm. even after the lesson was learned over a year and a half ago. Um, and it just makes me more concerned about uh, if we're going to see anything from the Attorney General's office with respect to DEP's conduct. Well, that's why I think um, groups like ours, you know, small grassroots groups are really important and can play an important role. Um, Because now that I have the knowledge of that, I can, you know, I'm basically arming myself with that knowledge and then following up with them. And, you know, I think one of the things that we need to do more is talk to each other um, as, you know, people 
experiencing the same things, which is why we started the letter writing campaign in the first place. You know, I sent out letters to directors of other organizations that we work with a lot and asked them to send letters as well, because I knew that there were other people that have dealt with this. And I knew we weren't the only ones. Um, And, you know, there are people all across the state dealing with this type of issue. Um, And so I think we all need to to take the time to write to the AG's office, to call them, to write letters, have your people write letters, and demand that they do something, because they're going to keep misdirecting and pointing the finger if we don't hold them accountable. Um, so that's our next step to really um, to call them back and 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 demand that they pursue it. How would you how would you rate this in terms of the urgency of the issue and why? Well, I think the urgency for me personally is it's fairly urgent because uh, the one of the cases that we're dealing with right now is um, we're, we're uh, we've appeal, f- filed an appeal for two of the well permits that were um, that were permitted after we wrote our letters to our initial letters to DEP and that well pads right near my house. And so for me personally, this is a very important an urgent case for me because if those well, if those first wells for this pad are approved, and the Environmental Hearing Board doesn't appeal or doesn't reverse that decision by DEP to approve this operator that has been known to have violations for over two years, then there will be more pollution in my community specifically, and that operator alone has seven new well pads proposed for my community, all of which we at Protect BT have been fighting for the last four years, and we are pursuing at different levels of the court system. So for me, it's just another layer of trying to get protection for my community and my neighbors um, through the courts and uh, now through the AG's office, and I, I really need them to do something about it. And what, what is it that you would tell the Attorney General about DEP's conduct specifically? I think that I think that their conduct is <laughs> um, I think that they they're not doing their job flat flat out because there are violations uh, you know these are p- pieces of paper basically the DEP writes a, a piece of paper they send a paper to the company saying you're in violation of state law and they spell out what that is, and they spell out why, and we have all that documentation, but sending a piece of paper is not doing anything. So the next step after sending a stack of papers saying you're in violation would be for them to pursue the case and for them to issue penalties and for them to revoke permits or not issue new permits, and they're not taking that next step. They're just, it's like they're frozen in time. Um, and it's very frustrating. Why do you think that they're not taking that next step? I think that they, um, I don't know if it's political pressure. I don't know if it's that they simply don't want to. Um, but I know that I pay my taxes to pay their salaries. And I know that my rights are being violated every day because they're not doing their job. And that is unacceptable to me. I read something about your conversation with uh, the Secretary Patrick McDonald. And he stated to you that uh, we, we, we understand your concerns and we are doing everything that we can to make sure that the company remains in compliance. Do you think that there's a potential that they're not taking this step because in this case, 
the companies would be out of compliance and I think they would have a systemic situation at their office where companies would be out of compliance um, if that were true, if they took a case like yours and removed a company from compliance and prevented them from getting new permits and, and that type of thing. Well, I would say that most companies that are operating um, in this state are out of compliance and that they're not this is the case for all that for most of them. I don't know of a company that I've researched that is in compliance um, with the DEP and that and they're all being issued permits. You're saying based on uh, what DEP says or based on what you think when reviewing the records? When we review the records. But DEP saying that they're in compliance. They're saying they're saying that working towards compliance is the same thing as in compliance. And to me, that's not the same thing. If you're working towards compliance, you're not in compliance. Um, and that was that was a quote that, you know, we had asked him in a in a public meeting, uh, Patrick McDonald, we asked him in a public meeting why they were issuing permits. And he said, you know, when an operator is is not in compliance, our first priority is for them to get to get them into compliance. And I said, why isn't your first priority to uphold our constitutional rights to clean air and pure water? That's that should be your first priority, uh, not to work with the company to get them into compliance. That's not your job. Your job is to protect us, not to protect the companies. That, that seems completely reasonable to me yeah. uh, to take that that kind of direction and statement with them. I mean, what you're describing sounds not much different than you know what we saw banks doing to mortgages, like trying to shuffle them around and create this mirage of a of a of a good you know, environment to invest in. I mean, it sounds like, you know, the regulatory version of some kind of compliance bubble. And I, at this point, um, if the bubble bursts, we're just looking at more water pollution, more air pollution, more soil pollution. Both. I mean, or all, all of those things. I think that we're going to look back at this, this age where we have all this oil and gas development and just you know, maybe it's our kids, you know, our kids generation, and they're just gonna, they're, they're, they're either not going to have clean water to drink, <laughs> which is a, a pretty terrible thought, considering we all need that as humans. Um, or, you know, they're going to look back and just have an environmental disaster that they're never going to be able to clean up. I mean, if you think about the uh, mining industry, in this state, worse where there's this is such the, the mining industry has such uh, an amount of contamination in our waters that can never be cleaned up. I mean, and that's I see the same thing happening over and over again. Isn't the definition of insanity like doing the same thing and expecting a different result? You know, they're doing the exact same thing as they did with mining, where we're going to be stuck with this pollution for hundreds of years and we're never going to be able to clean it up. You think Governor Tom Wolf is culpable in this? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, he has the resources and he has the ability to do something about it. This is his DEP. These are his employees. And he could do something about it. Um, and, you know, when we talk to folks at the governor's offices, which we have before, they kind of point the fingers to our legislators. And I think it's their fault, too. I think it's all of their faults um, because our legislators kind of pick and choose which parts of the Constitution that they want to uphold. You know, they uh, we you know, we live in a very, um, a very right wing um, 
community and um, a lot of our senators and our uh, representatives love to to cite parts of the constitution that they that their constituents or their uh, people that follow them love you know like um, the right to bear arms but I feel that the right to bear arms and the right to free speech and the right to clean air and pure water are exactly the same especially for my kids there's a lot of people across the country uh, who've had to struggle with the oil and gas industry on topics like this and uh, of course every state that we've we've been to and we've been to all the states uh, where fracking is taking place in the U.S., uh, we do hear this story over and over again about regulatory failures. Um, what would be your advice to, to communities both in Pennsylvania and those nationwide when, when dealing with this issue? I mean, how, how do they get started off on the right foot? Do they take the position that you're taking right now and try and get the state criminally investigated, uh, try and sue the companies? Um, or do they take, you know... The other approach, which is what we're seeing in Virginia, where uh, activists are climbing trees and blocking pipelines and essentially preventing the state from being able to follow through uh, with the permits that they've issues. I mean, issued. I mean, what is your advice for those communities and other places? Well, I would say both of those things are good options and more. Um, the first thing that people need to do is arm themselves with knowledge and um once they know what their rights are, then they can try to pursue have, trying to have those rights um, being upheld and not being violated. So whether it's your local government that uh, has the ability to, uh, do, to write a law to prevent that from happening, or if it's the state um, that's allowing it to happen, unnecessarily or if it's you know climbing in trees or uh, on on bulldozers whatever you you need to do chasing school buses (laughs) um you know we uh, i don't i'm not a tree climber (laughs) i prefer to um to uh see them in court (laughs) that's just my preference um but um, you know, I think that everyone has a different approach. And as long as you're making noise and, and as long as you're knowing what your options are and pursuing those options and, and just fighting for your rights, for your kids, for your community, because there's really not an option to do nothing because our kids are going to be left with this mess. Are there any lessons that you learned along the way, too, with this, things that you think people should be, uh, be aware of? Yeah, I think that people should um, not accept no for an answer. <laughs> Number one, if someone tells you no, um, press and, and know what your rights are and try to dig for that information um, because the information's out there. You just have to learn where to find it. And, and, what, and you know, if someone tells you that they can't give you that information, um, then you just cite cite the law and you don't have to be a lawyer and you don't have to have a lawyer. I mean, we have a lawyer, but, uh, and we have an awesome, really awesome lawyer, but I, they taught me how to advocate for my community with the laws that are in place. So we're trying to educate other people to do that. Um, because I feel like I have to pay it forward, you know, and, and if we all knew, 
what our options are that, you know, we might be more likely to do something about it. What's some of the worst things that you've seen from DEP or what's one of the worst things that you've seen? I think for me personally, the worst thing was being told that they didn't, that um, my family's life wasn't worth them pursuing. That was the worst thing for me. Sorry, I'm getting upset. <laughs> that that was the worst thing. Um, and just seeing permit after permit after permit being a, approved, um, it's really daunting to see these. We have, you know, these maps of our community and, you know, we've got dots on the map of, of all the different uh, proposed well pads and just seeing one after another after another um, in this residential community. You know, unlike oil and gas in other communities thus far in Pennsylvania, where it's been very rural and there are a few people or a couple dozen people that are impacted and those couple dozen people are worth just as much as a couple thousand people. Um, everyone has value and whether it's a couple dozen people or a couple thousand people or 10,000 people or 20,000 people, it doesn't matter. Um, the DEP needs to do something to uh, prevent those people from being harmed. Um, and we're just dealing with a community with 20,000 people. Um, so I can see that not only are we going to have a couple dozen, but we're going to have hundreds uh, of people, thousands of people harmed. Um, when, it's not an if, it's a when, um, you know, uh, something goes wrong. Yeah, and the only way that I see any of this getting corrected uh, is for, again, the attorney general uh, to wake up and take the step of prosecuting the DEP on criminal conduct. Uh, it's either that or people performing direct actions and shutting down DEP and attorney general's offices in order to get something done. But, um, I mean, we do have the experiences that you're describing uh, we do have evidence that that's happening across the entire state uh, where families are less important uh, than basically the bottom line of the industry. Uh, and these families are being harmed, they're being polluted, um, they're being forced to live in completely unreasonable and unsafe conditions. Uh, and the DEP is creating a mirage of, of, of safety and compliance uh, that's completely untrue. Uh, and the governor seems to be repeating that lie. And the only person who can step in here and fix this seems to be the attorney general uh, who can finally shed some light on exactly what's happening here, not in some kind of settlement behind closed doors, but in an open courtroom where the public can participate and begin to see what DEP has done in the last 10 years with oil and gas. Yeah, the public has a right to participate. The public has a right to to have their voices heard. Um, and, and that's not happening. Um, and something has got to give, um, because we have, we have the right to clean air and water. Um, and I know I feel bad that rural communities have been dealing with this for so long. You know, I mean, we feel that kind of lucky in the way that we kind of got to it before it, really started happening in our community where it was unfettered uh, development and unfettered pollution. We feel really lucky 
that we had the resources at the time and had the, the, you know, people behind us at the time and kind of the right place, the right time. Um, but there are communities that are, you know, have been dealing with this for 10 years and they're not getting anywhere. So, I mean, what, what's, what's the breaking point, you know? Um, I don't know, but I know that if I can try to break it and 10 other people, 20 other people, 50, hundreds other people do it across the state, then maybe something will give. Democracy depends on people speaking out and in times of great crisis on people creating a commotion. That doesn't mean that you have to break anything. 1,000 people sitting down someplace, not letting anybody buy, not letting anything happen, can stop any machine, including this machine, and it will stop. So my name is Lisa Winter, and I currently live in St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm part of the Rising Tide North America Collective. And we're touring around north, uh, the East Coast and the Midwest with Indiglinda. My name is Daniel Hoffinger. I come from Bonn, Germany, uh, in Western Germany. And we're touring with Rising Tide to get people excited about mass civil disobedience and try to learn how civil disobedience, how climate justice is being fought for here and to share our stories and experiences with our campaign against coal in Germany. We're here today from the Glitterbox Theater in Pittsburgh. Uh, Rising Tide and Endiglende focus on social and environmental justice, targeting corporate solutions to climate change, things like carbon trading and green capitalism. They confront far-right populist propaganda for what it is, and they actively work with communities who are suffering from pollution and climate catastrophes. The first question has to be, who is Endiglende, and what is your story? Yeah, thank you for having us. Endiglende is an, is an alliance that organizes mass actions of civil disobedience, We've seen over and over again with the climate negotiations, with the state failing on the climate issue, with corporation profiting off of the destruction of the planet, that we need to take things in our own hand. We can't, cannot trust others to solve these issues for us. We need to do it by ourselves. So what we, what we basically do is that we organize masses of people, we train them, we prepare them, um, and then we go into Europe's largest coal mine and block the huge machinery that's uh, extracting the coal there. Um, Germany is trying to present itself as the global climate leader, as the champion of the energy vendor, the energy transition, as sort of the role model for how economies should transition. But that's actually a dirty lie. It, um, Germany is actually the biggest polluter in Europe. The Rhenish coal area is actually Europe's largest source of CO2. And we are trying to expose that dirty lie for what it is and to stop that coal from being extracted. Yeah, so that, that seems confusing. Like in America, you see all these people posting about, look at Germany going 100% renewable and that kind of thing. But you're saying that's not the case. Well, there are a lot of renewable energies in Germany, and that's a good thing. And that has come out of a decade-long tradition of resistance and social movements innovating on the in the energy sector as well. Germany did just present a plan to phase out coal by 2038. And that might sound as something that is good, but actually we would miss the Paris Agreement by 1 billion tons of CO2 if we were to continue burning coal for the next 20 years. 
So we cannot let that happen. We will not let that happen. We just this Friday saw 300,000 high school kids go on strike to protect the climate. And the climate movement, the climate justice movement in Germany is as strong as, as it's never been before. And yeah, I'm very proud that Endigeland is part of this movement. Um, and we are sort of the the ones that say we need to go one step further. We need to do actions of civil disobedience. The laws protect the corporations that extract the coal and profit, right? And they don't protect us. So these laws cannot be the only thing that is a guideline for our actions. So we have to, at some point, deliberately step over these laws, for example, by trespassing into the coal mine uh, and with our own bodies shutting the whole machinery down. And your group was basically targeting what was a lignite mine, correct? Yes, an open cast lignite mine. It's the largest mines in Europe. They're five by seven miles long and a quarter mile deep. They're huge. And for people who don't really know what that is, it's not like your traditional coal mining in the United States. We have lignite mines in North Dakota and a few other places, but basically it's like tar sand. So you're scraping off the surface to try and get at, you know, this, this layer of brown coal, essentially. Forests, uh, fields, villages, graveyards, churches, kindergartens, hospitals, like everything has to go. Actually, and this is not often talked about, since 1945, there have been over 100,000 people have been resettled in Germany and evicted from their homes and villages for coal mining. And there are 2,000 people due to be resettled and evicted um, with eminent domain in the Rhinish coal area. And they are standing up there organizing, they're resisting. Um, and also the forests need to be clear-cut for the mining. You might have heard of the Hambach Forest that has been occupied since six years and that got evicted uh, in a three-week-long police operation last September. After that police operation um, was was finished, they had evicted 90 tree sits in the Hambach Forest. It was a direct action on a massive scale. And the day after the eviction was over 50,000 people converged on the Hambach Forest to say, no, this has to stop. We need to keep this coal in the ground. Either we have a safe and livable planet on the future, in the future, or we burn coal. Both is not possible. So what is it that happened then with Endicolende? How, how did you guys end up uh, organizing yeah. there? So the, there's a long tradition of social movements in Germany. And the, there were first climate camps popping up in Germany in 2010 and 2011. And we were about 100 people, and then we were 150 people, 200 people, 230 people. And we were excited because we were growing as a movement, as a social movement. But we also knew that was way too slow. We needed to scale things up a little bit if we wanted to stop this. So in 2014, when we knew that the next uh, climate conference, the COP20-something, was due to be in Paris, we decided, no, we're not going to go to the negotiation center and beg our elected leaders that uh, they solve the issue. We decided that in August of 2015, we would yeah, enter the mine to, to block it. And we did something that was new for us to scale up the resistance. We openly announced that we were going to do it. We said from the beginning, six months ahead of the action, we are going to block this mine. And that was, that was quite a thing. Um, and then actually 1,500 people showed up. Um, we had uh, lots of action trainings, um, a lot of preparation for the action. Uh, and yeah, we managed to successfully pull it off and uh, enter the mine. And then that was a huge success. And we've um, been growing ever since. We now have over 50 local chapters in Germany and Europe. Um, and last October, in October of 2018, 5,500 people joined us for our la largest action 
ever since where we blocked the railroad tracks on which the coal is being transported for over 30 hours. So you got 5,000 people to show up in order for an action to happen. Yeah, and in the beginning of October, we had over 5,000 people from all over Europe. We actually had a special train running from Prague and Berlin, a train with uh, close to 1,000 people uh, to the Endegelende action. There were buses from Helsinki doing a 40-hour drive to join the action and buses from all over Germany and a lot of local people um, joined our action. We do this in combination with climate camps where we will tend uh, camp for like a week um, and prepare ourselves, have a lot of discussion, action trainings, um, where we will form affinity groups to prepare ourselves for the action, where we have action plenaries where we discuss how the action is going to go forward where we will talk about our action consensus in which we outline how the action is being organized. The action consensus is a really important document for us. It says that we don't harm people, that we don't destruct, destroy infrastructure, um, that the safety and security of all participants is our highest priority. And that's a lot of the stuff that we go through during these camps and also to make connections and build relationships and to educate ourselves. And yeah, then we leave in the morning. To This time it was maybe a 10-mile walk to get to the mine, um, we had to cross a highway. Lisa was actually there, so you might uh, be able to talk about more on that as well. And yeah, the next action is actually going to be um, from June 19th to 23rd of 2019. So if you're in Germany, please join us. <laughs> <laughs> hey Lisa, how, how, did, how did Rising Tide get involved in this and what's your role? Right, so um, currently I am on tour with them and I'm helping do like logistical things and helping guide conversations, but um, I think Rising Tide got excited about this because we see the need to use direct action as a way to change the dialogue and so and to put pressure on um, corporations and our legislation and all of these folks to put pressure on them. And so we got excited about bringing um, into Galinda over because they're doing these mass direct actions and have affected really the dialogue in Germany about like what what is happening with coal and how people feel about coal. And so we wanted to meet with, um, and we've been going around and meeting with community members now, I think we're on day 12 and we have like two and a half more weeks to go. And everywhere from small towns to big towns, so from Brattleboro, Vermont, um, to New York City, and now we're here in Pittsburgh. And we wanna have a conversation and maybe provoke people a little bit into thinking about how can you use direct action to accomplish the goals you want? And we're hearing a lot of people talk about that they're building, doing community building, or they're trying to pass legislation, or they're trying to run people for office. And we're, we're challenging people to think about what would it look like to use direct action to reach those goals? And how does direct action help you actually reach um, the goals and um, that you're trying to put forward. And so um, it's been really interesting to have that conversation. Um, it's ranged wildly as far as like how people have responded to it. But I think that um, by the end of the day, most of the people have, um, we've had a good conversation. And so hopefully we're starting to plant that seed. And then now long-term goals will be um, trying to think about like how we can, we can help people um, what resources do they need to actually be able to do this direct action? And so like Rising Tide is looking at like how we can organize with different groups, how we can provide resources, maybe skill up different, different groups so that they can actually do direct action in their area. And your experiences in Germany, uh, what was that like? <laughs> um, we just, it was just really, really, I, 
I feel like a really lucky person. I have really good dumb luck sometimes. And we just happened to be going to Germany for, um, for like this conference. And we happened to just be there when into Glenda was going to happen. And so the three of us just went to the camp and, um, it was, um, really powerful. It was really powerful to see, um, 6,000 people be willing to, at that moment when it came time to actually do the direct action, it wasn't a matter of like looking at each other and being like, am I going to go? Am I not going to go? And you have like three people go and everybody else is left behind. Everybody just went. And, um, I've been lucky enough to get to talk to Daniel and Dorothy this whole time while we've been on this tour and understanding the amount of preparation that went into being, being able to make that moment happen. So they do direct action camps and they do week long, 10, 10 day long camps, um, throughout the year to prepare people and to give people the skills and to, um, to give people the skills to reach that moment. And the other thing I think that was really powerful for, um, and we can talk about some of the tactics they used that were really exciting. But I think the other thing that was really um, powerful for us, because we were not organizers at all, we just showed up, was their ability to bring people in from uh, you to feel like you knew everything you needed to know to do the direct action and that you had the skills you needed to do the direct action. Um, and yet you felt like you were like part of that process also. So it felt really powerful to feel like you were part of the decision making process. Um, for it. And so like they work on a consensus model, which is amazing, um, which is amazing. And they, they are committed to it and they work on it on a large scale. So being even in a room with like 200, 400 people, they still work, they have a process they've used by consensus. So as a participant, it felt really amazing. And as a participant, when you got to that point where it was time to go and I didn't make it to the tracks, because I'm slow. <laughs> oh, they got you. <laughs> they didn't get me. Oh, okay. but they got in, they, I didn't make it to the tracks. Okay. Um, which I'm, you know, anyway, sad about. But um, but as a participant, it felt really empowering to be doing this with so many other people and with like this this peace in mind. And even afterwards, as a person that didn't make it to the tracks, when we got back and they were like showing video of the people that didn't make it to the tracks and people were talking about it, it felt like a shared effort. Like I felt like even though I didn't make it to the tracks, I was part of making it happen. And, um, it was really, it was really amazing and really exciting. Yeah. The story sounds, you know, very similar to, um, standing rock and, and right. what the challenges that people were facing there. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Some of the, the similarities and differences that have happened, uh, between those two actions. Right. Um, I'd have to think about that for a minute. I mean, right off the bat, for me, um, inclusion for Endeglende sounds a lot stronger than inclusion for Standing Rock. Right, and that's been an interesting conversation for us to have um, on all the places that we're that we're stopping. Almost universally, everybody's like, "Well, you can't work in a consensus model that way. You can't bring everybody in that way, or you can't work in an open um, where you're openly announcing what your action is." And we're like, "Well, <laughs> you can't because we're showing you an example of how that's worked." Um, I think the other difference um, between what Inda Glenda was doing and Standing Rock is Standing Rock, um, the camps were kind of a direct action, but at no time really did everybody, pretty much everybody from that camp participate in one direct action, right? The camp itself was. And I, I mean, I think we can have a lot of discussion about why that was and why that wasn't. Theirs is a very specific amount of time. It's just that, that weekend, 
And, um, you know, Standing Rock was like a long-term encampment. Um, and just that in itself, I mean, makes it that much more difficult, correct? Just to, right. to try and endure for the, the timeline that people had to endure right. at Standing Rock, especially in that terrain. If anybody's ever been to North Dakota before, yeah, uh, it's no joke when it comes to, to weather and, and resources. Right. I think one of the other things that I've been trying to think about a lot is that... Um, so one of the other differences I would notice that I'm thinking about, and, I, and I, I'm not sure what to make of it, but like into Glinda, they chose that mine and they chose that target and they go there and they, they do that action. So like at Standing Rock, like in a way the action or like the, the place and the pipeline chose them. And it wasn't like people were like, oh, if we could just do this, this thing at, at Standing Rock and then the pipeline comes through. Instead, the pipeline was coming through and then like, Local people were like, oh, my gosh, this pipeline's coming through. We now need to deal with it. And it's like it's just a different direction to operate. Well, we have not too much time left, but I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in the states in terms of direct actions that are that are currently going on. I mean, we have the um, efforts with the ACP and MVP and the tree sets that are happening there, right. which, of course, are, are, are much less volume uh, than what. Daniel speaking about with Germany. Um, And then we have other instances where the east of here, uh, Grant Township, which is an hour east of here, they passed um, a local law to legalize civil disobedience. That way, uh, local authorities would not be able to arrest anyone who wanted to block the roads and try and enforce uh, their community bill of rights and enforce their uh, rights of nature clause to try and protect that community. So how does that, does it ever... I mean, has that ever even been a possibility in any of your efforts? The idea that civil disobedience would be legal and you'd have like a legislation there to protect it. I think the interesting thing that comes up in that discussion is why would it be illegal to save the future and to save the planet? I mean, the whole point of civil disobedience is that state sanctioned laws protect the companies who profit off of the destruction of our planet. And that's we cannot simply go on with this. So what we do is that we deliberately break some of those laws to highlight the injustice that is happening in coal mining. And when we started doing that, we had a lot of discussions if if that's like too radical or too extremist. And I would always say the radicals are the ones who burn the planet. And that what we do, that's necessary. It's necessary to save the forest and the, the, the future. And I think a lot, like a lot of people know this when we look at the science that's coming out that says we have 12 years left if we want a livable future, a lot of people are don't know how to feel about this. So what we need to do as a movement, as a social movement, is not only talk to the choir of the ones that we already know and do actions with like the same 20, 30, 50 people all over um, all the time, or not only have legal cases where five expert lawyers can contribute to, but we need to build organizations that can um, hold masses of people. In, within Endegelände, I think we have in Germany and Europe now up to 500 people part, being part of the organization. And they bring five friends each and then we have like a couple thousand people. Yeah, um, And we do this by make, trying to make the action as accessible as possible. Lisa, when you talked about not reaching the uh, coal railroad tracks, you were... An, integral part of the action because Mm -hmm. it's not only the cool macho guys in the first row who are seen in the media that are 
that contributes to the action. It's everybody who participates. It's everybody who takes care of each other. It's everybody who cooks the food, who prepares the plenary, who cleans up the trash, who does all this uh, reproductive and background work. So we need to find, and a lot of people can't or shouldn't or would, won't uh, participate in these types of action that we conduct. So it's, I think, really important to have avenues for everyday, for ordinary people to step up and, um, yeah, take responsibility for the future and to, to join to join these campaigns. And also, Endeglende is part of a broader movement ecology. There is a lot of local resistance in the Rhinish coal area and in the other coal areas. Um, we work or we talk to a lot to the to the people who experience the the direct impacts of the coal mining. We know that the that climate change is a global issue. The people who are going to be hit first and hardest by climate change are not white people in Germany, but people in the global south especially. Um, and also, coal is not a German issue. Lignite coal is being mined and burned in Germany. Yes, but we have a different type of coal as well, anthracite coal. And Germany just phased out mining of that anthracite coal. But we didn't phase out the burning of that coal. And all the anthracite coal that's being burned in Germany right now is imported from Colombia, from Russia, from South Africa, and guess what, from the United States, from Appalachia, through Baltimore, through Maryland. Uh, and it's been an honor and a privilege here to meet some of the people who in their area, in their region, the mine that is being burned in Germany, uh, the coal that's being burned in Germany is mined here. So we want to and need to build international movements to stop this madness. And can I add something to that? Absolutely. So um, I just have two thoughts. One, it's amazing to hear about um, a town um, legalizing civil disobedience because in most places, actually, the opposite's happening. They're creating critical infrastructure laws that are putting people at greater and greater risk. And every, it seems like everywhere I go and people I talk to, they're worried about climate change. They're worried about, like this extraction process, but they're leaving it to just a few people to fight those battles. And it's putting those people at an extremely um, high risk. And so we're asking just a few people to take the risk of something that benefits all of us. And I think it's time for more people to step up in whatever way they can, whether it's actually um, taking more risk themselves or supporting those movements or just even verbally acknowledging that it's happening and sharing that. And it's like, if we're able to start getting movements, so like I was just down at Bayou Bridge and there's a lot of people down there that are facing a lot of um, felonies and a lot of risk because they've been trying to stop the pipeline that's going through there. But if we were able to actually have 5,000 or even 500 or 800 people show up, it helps protect everybody and have um, less risk for everybody that's there. So if we can like have more people come, it shares that burden. It helps um, people feel co more connected to what's happening and it empowers us. So I'm just challenging people to like step up, see how you can plug in, organize a direct action in your own community around something you feel powerful or that you feel about powerfully about um, and help support other people that are doing the same thing. Well, let's suspect there are people listening who of course are fighting uh, oil and gas corporations or coal corporations in the courts, uh, have been doing so for years and they're frustrated, maybe burned out by this. Um, how would they get plugged in to, to this type of tactic uh, rather than the original tactic that they've been using. Because most of the time, you know, the way these folks get plugged in is that they, they speak to their local green organizations and those organizations suggest to them uh, that they should file these lawsuits. So places like uh, uh, Sierra Club or, you know, 350 or Food and Water or, or those types of groups. I mean, 
in the States here, I mean, I seem like 350 had a lot more involvement with you um, over in Germany, but in the States here, the, the traditional tactic of going to court seems to be um, what everybody is proposing for the local communities. You know, if, if we even discuss or ask questions about uh, passing local legislation like community rights or rights of nature, that's usually immediately thrown out the door as being unconstitutional, which of course, in your case, you're saying we just need to break the law, period. I am. So how would they get plugged in? I mean, how would they get involved? Right. Um, so there's um, several different organizations that are popping up right this minute in local groups. So there's um, the Sunrise Movement, and there's also Extinction Rebellion. Um, I would say look at, um, uh, check out like Rising Tide North America. And if you, you can even contact us and we can help. We have a contacts throughout. We're across the United States and we may, there might not be a Rising Tide Collective where you are, but we can help you find a local group that's using direct action um, where you're at. I wouldn't say that you shouldn't go to court. And right. we've seen a lot of um, social progress made in courts, be it the civil rights movement, be it um, women's uh, rights movements, or LGBTQ rights. But all of these movements were supported by a strong power on the streets. Correct. And it's not only the courts, it's the combination of everything. It's, it's an all of the above strategy. Um, and also just going to court, you will need the, some outside pressure to convince the judicial system that you are on the right side of history. And what I found really interesting also in Germany, we've had some successes in the court. Um, the Hambach Forest um, has not been clear-cut for two years because Friends of the Earth courageously took the mining company RWE to court and won. And that's a huge effort and a huge victory for us. And it was possible and accompanied by 50,000 people showing up at the demo, by 5,000 people showing up at Endegelände, by people occupying the Hambach Forest for six years. So I think we need the diversity of tactics and their 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 synergies, and they, they can profit off of each other when everything's done in parallel. And there's a good um, collaboration, cooperation within the movement. And I think it's a big step for for me. It was anyway. It's a big step to for the first time to to block a mind. I mean, that's something pretty ridiculous to do when you think about it. But when you further think about it, it's not. It's pretty common sense thing to do because we need to save the future. And I think we all agree on that. Um, what we do in Germany is that we have a lo lot of local chapters, which I guess exist here as well, of different organizations who do action trainings, direct action trainings. And that's stuff you can learn. And there's a, and we take the time to discuss, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? What is the risk? What is the benefit? Um, then we form affinity groups because we don't go into these actions alone. We form affinity groups which are a group of friends that you trust it could be two it could be ten people and we before the action talk about everything like do i have health issues do i have trauma do i um want to go all in and then during the action we know that we are not alone but we are surrounded by people we can trust and who will um yeah who will support us during the action and also we have a we emphasize our follow-up uh, process where we debrief Uh, where we go back to the local chapters then and discuss what was good, what was bad about the action. So I'm, I think, um, yeah, good preparation is key. And in that case, when you look at something like Standing Rock, the uh, big setback there, of course, was the, the police force, the uh, militarized police force that came in and 
uh, sprayed people with water and sub-zero temperatures, uh, you know, used what they called non-lethal devices against them and, and seriously uh, injured people to the point where they you know, lost their limb or, or their eye. Uh, I mean, how, how do you uh, prepare people for that? I can't remember the, the total number of arrests at Standing Rock, but I want to say it was something like in the upper 400s. Um, and at Enda Galende, I'm sure you had uh, you know, the same, the same type of like corporate back, state back, uh, police force that showed up to prevent all of you from, from performing your action. Um, and how do you prepare for that? How do you discuss that? Yeah, I do want to acknowledge that from the discussions that I'm hearing is that the German police force doesn't seem to be as militarized and as messed up as the, the, the thing that you have here. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, during the eviction of the Hambach forest, at some point, and the Hambach Forest, by the way, is about as big as Central Park in New York. There were up to 4,500 police officers on site at one point. During the end of Gelände action in October, we had about 2,000 or over 2,000 police officers um, on site. And what we do is that we don't see the police as our enemy. We see them as an obstacle because we don't want to get arrested as the goal of action. We want to stop the coal mine from operating as the goal of action. So when we encounter a police line, we walk through them, we walk around them, we flow through them, as we call it, where we, we don't attack them. We, mean, we, have, we are always going to lose a, co a confrontation with this militarized police. But we are in a rural area, we have a lot of space. So we spread out, we are a lot of people, we use the terrain to go through the police line and go into the mine. Um, and I don't want to be arrested. I think that's a, that's a difference between civil disobedience in Germany and the United States is, here it's oftentimes about being arrested and you have to be arrested to be part of the action. Well, I don't want to be arrested. It's not fun. It's not something that I want to do. It's a pretty bad situation you're in. Um, so we try to, to we try being arrested as good as we can, um, as I said, by going through the police lines. And they actually come up with, with reasons now uh, why our action is not illegal because they know that they can't do anything about 5,000 people. Um, so they just come up with reasons why it's not illegal and they don't have anything to do. So I think having masses and people um, really, really is an advantage to, to, for these actions. And Lisa, did you want to comment about the states on that? Yeah, um, I'll take a minute. I think um, it's important also to talk about like what privileges we have here. So I'm a middle-aged white woman and I understand that my relationship and the reaction I often get from the police is going to be different than other um other people like a young black male. And um, I think having discussions in your group and the group that you organize with and actually looking at what your privileges are and how the police is going to react to you is really important. So I just want to put that out there to start with. And I am absolutely not advocating that um, everybody puts themselves to take that risk or that they, you know, that I, I would want to pressure everybody to take that risk. However, <laughs> um, I think when you you do have a place where you can take that risk so um, that you can't, that you should. And the other thing I wanted to just add to that is just the fact that like, I think that it's, it's hard to prepare for this. I'm trying to think of different, different situations where we've tried to prepare. So I think like, um, as Daniel mentioned, the direct action training is a really good place. If you have a good trainer, they'll help walk you through like what to expect with different comfort, 
different kinds of confrontation with the police. And I feel like that's really helpful. I feel like going and having um, a couple experiences with like maybe lower risk direct action to start with, like maybe a road shut down or something like or an occupation of a um, you know, local politician's office are good places to also start. Um, I also think that there are some things that you just can't prepare for. So um, thinking about like having larger numbers, um, thinking about being creative in tactics, I feel like are really important and um, preparing as well as you can to like try to keep your people safe so that they can feel safe all the way through that um, process feels really important to me. And being um, aware that like there are just some things that are really that are really hard to prepare for. Um, yeah, you want to add to that? For us at Endingland, it's really important that we have an action consensus. That's a document that we um, approve every year as the organizational um, structure, where we outline the how we want the action to go forward. We say that we don't harm any people. We say that we don't um, destroy property or infrastructure, and that's really important for participants of the action to be able to trust us organizers, um, that we have good things in mind when we ask people to join our action and also for everybody involved to trust, trust each other, that everybody's going to yeah behave in a certain way that is expectable and for the participants, um, and everybody can be held accountable to that when, when people would do stupid stuff at the actions, people would say, Hey, stop it. This is not the action consensus. So I think this is a really important document for us um, to have and it helps build relationships and trust also with allies um, in NGOs and in other organizations um, because they can trust that we we have a saying in England that we say what we do and we do what we say. You say that um, in your press release that in order to win this that you'll need to have a, a mass grassroots movement that uses direct action to take down the fossil fuel industry and demand a just, a just transition to decentralized and democratized energy systems. So can you explain what a democratized energy system is? Yeah, so there's a lot of things wrong with the German energy uh, transition, Energiewende, but there's also one really nice thing. Almost one million people in Germany now own or partially own the production of the energy system, be it through cooperatives that own a wind turbine or through a solar panel on your roof. Um, and I think that's an important part also in the tra transformation of the, the economy. Because at the end, it's about democracy. It's about who makes who gets to make the decision in the society we live in. And right now, when it comes to energy, that's four or five corporations in Germany that say, well, I don't care for the people, I care for my money, um, and so we're going to extract coal and burn the future. Well, what happens if almost one million people and counting can uh, get to decide what the energy system looks like, uh, they opt in for clean energy, for sustainable energy. Um, and it gives power to the people away from the corporations. So I think when we are trying to stop the fossil fuel industry, it's also important to build up the alternatives that will replace them. And these need to be clean, sustainable and democratic. And if you are listening and you want to get involved with uh, Lisa or Daniel, uh, with Lisa, she's part of Rising Tide North America. You can go to risingtidenorthamerica.org. And with Daniel, uh, you can look up enda-galende.org online and find more about their, their efforts on there. And thank you both for, for talking with me. It was a pleasure. Pleasure hearing fun. your story. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> thank you for having me.
This week, we close out the show to the largely unreported story where over a million students have been walking out of class every week into the streets to demand authorities take action on climate change. The school strikes were inspired by the 16-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, who since September 2018 has been leaving school every Friday to strike in front of the Swedish parliament. Her now-famous panic speech, where she shamed political and industry leaders for their inaction, has led to her recent nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. The show today is as much a story about our responsibility for the next generation as it is a wake-up call for everything that is happening around us, whether it be in the economy, politics, social justice, or the environment. And we want to thank those like Greta, Jillian, Daniel, and Lisa for having the courage to speak out, put their bodies on the gears of the machine, and do all they can to make it stop. Coming to you from Public Herald Studios, you've been listening to News Coup. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. <laughs>